Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Friday, May 26th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We're doing a special show today, a full show takeover on the issue of fatness. There are other ways to say it. All are objected to by some party or another. Obesity, health and weight, body size. So to set the terms of the discussion you're about to hear, there is a movement, a growing movement of body positivity or body neutrality. Body neutrality is sometimes posited as an improvement on body positivity. Sometimes it's just a half step if we can't get to the place of positivity. And then comes the health at every size movement. It's actually a copyrighted phrase. H-A-E-S is a political and cultural movement towards social justice and institutionalized community support for people of all sizes, particularly those whose bodies are subject to weight stigma and anti-fat bias, the official wording says. And they criticize something called healthism, which is defined as those who perpetuate healthism, including many medical professionals, may suggest that lifestyle modifications like exercise and dieting can fix or cure chronic illness and or disabilities rather than taking into account a person's socioeconomic status, access to nutritious food and healthcare, and or space and time in which to move their bodies. Another way to phrase one of the tenets of this broader movement, and they do phrase it this way, is to argue that weight stigma is worse than obesity. This is one of the parts of progressivism, I'd say the most progressive of the progressives, that really confuses me. It's not everywhere in usually progressive spaces. I mean, you tune into NPR, they're still doing life kit reports about positive ways to get your kids to lose the 20 pounds she or he gained during the pandemic. But thinking of obesity as something other than a problem for individuals or societies, redefining the problem as just thinking of obesity that way, the very thought of it is the problem, not the fact of it. I think it's wrong. I did want to interrogate those thoughts that they say. And yes, there's so much evidence that stigma and cruelty doesn't work. Of course it doesn't. And that dieting per se is really hard to say the least. And that our society is very cruel when it comes to the obese, even the overweight, or even just the not thin. However, the broader claims of the fat liberation movement include tenants that I find hard to fathom. I have heard flat-out denialism of ill effects of obesity, or what doctors call obesity, in a way that if it were to be transposed to pretty much any other area of health, we would call that ignorant and unscientific and maybe even dangerous. So I wanted to invite on my show, and I did, and you will hear, this is the whole show, me talking to Virginia Soul Smith. I know of her substack, Burnt Toast, 
described as being about diet culture and fat phobia. Virginia Soul Smith has published dozens of articles in the New York Times on food parenting and dieting. Her last op-ed was a reaction to the American Association of Pediatrics guidelines for evaluating and treating children and adolescents with obesity. The title of that piece was Why the New Obesity Guidelines for Kids Terrify Me. And her argument is that the guidelines reinforce the bias against fat people. She says, quote, the guidelines are rooted in a premise that should have been rejected long ago, that weight loss is the best path to health and happiness. That might not seem so weird or radical if you add the word always. Something like, we should reject the premise that weight loss is always the best path to health and happiness. But Virginia Soulsmith believes that weight loss is never the best path to health and happiness, except for cases of aesthetic choice akin to piercings or hair dyeing or other body modifications. Like I said, it's a long interview. I do, in terms of words, interchangeably use obesity. And sometimes I say what doctors call obesity or what the medical community call obesity. I do try to have conversations using agreed upon terms. But, you know, you, the audience, are an unstated part of the conversation. So it's easier to use the word obesity, even if my guest prefers an alternative. I like to eliminate confusion. Oh, and before we dive in, I wanted to plug... Two recent appearances of me on other shows and podcasts, The Colin McEnroe Show, had me on the other day. It should be up in their feed. Alexandra Petri was the other guest. She wrote an excellent and funny new book. She can't write anything that's not funny. We talk about taking American history irreverently. I was also a contestant on the podcast game show, Go Fact Yourself. Check out both of them. Links in the show notes. But first, Virginia Soul Smith. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Virginia Soul Smith is the author, newly, of Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. You may know her from contributing to many magazines, but the Burnt Toast Newsletter or the Burnt Toast Podcast, these are huge in the area of what used to be called maybe fat acceptance, but now it's called fat liberation. This is a movement that Virginia knows well, and I don't want to mischaracterize her. Luckily, she's here, but I'll ask her if she's a champion, an adherent of said fat liberation. Virginia, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am an adherent of fat liberation. I think that for so long, we have really persecuted people based on their body size in this country, and we have not even identified it as a type of bias because we think of weight as something that should be a matter of personal responsibility and willpower. And we know now that the research shows that is absolutely not the case. And so to be paying people less based on their body size, to be designing public spaces that bodies don't fit into, to be discriminating against people based on body size in just every way you can think of is something we are long overdue to change. 
how much is it not within our control? I certainly agree in general strokes, but to what degree is it entirely, you use the word absolutely, out of our control? So, of course, this is like a very nuanced conversation in the research, but body size is probably at least 60% determined by your genetics. Um, We know that our bodies land in certain set points, like a range of weights that your body is determined to sort of keep you in. So when people pursue intentional weight loss, yes, we can all make our bodies smaller by restricting our calories really aggressively for some period of time, and you will see some temporary weight loss. But study after study shows that within the next two to five years, people, the vast majority of people, 80 to 95% of people regain that weight and usually gain more weight. And this is a feature, not a buck. This is your body fighting what it's perceiving to be as a famine or starvation and saying like, okay, I got you. I got you. I'm slowing down your metabolism. I'm turning up your hunger hormones and making you fixate on food. We misinterpret all of that as a failure of willpower. Oh, we just didn't try hard enough on our diet. But it's actually our bodies doing what our bodies do to protect us and to keep us what, where they think is like the safe space for us to be. So yeah, it is a losing battle. So whether it's a crisis or to what extent there has been a, uh, you know, sometimes it's overstated the amount that Americans are overweight, which I know is a term you don't love, but you, I mean, I've read the book, so there is no disagreeing with the fact that Americans have gotten larger They have gotten what most of medicine considers the rates of obesity have increased to. What do you attribute that if it's not, and I agree with you, if it's not mostly willpower? Because we didn't have the great decline in willpower of 1982. Right. You know, there's a couple of things that we need to look at there. Some of it is the way the data has been collected has changed over decades. So in 1998, the National Institutes of Health rejiggered the body mass index so that Overnight, 29 million Americans who were previously categorized as normal or, quote, overweight, were bumped up into the overweight and obese categories. And they did not overnight gain weight. They just, the way they were counted was different. And there's a lot of folks who argue that that was justified by the research. And there's a lot of folks who argue it is not justified by the research. And it is an interesting sort of thing to note that right around the same time is when the Food and Drug Administration began approving a whole new group of weight loss drugs. Obviously, the manufacturers of weight loss drugs needed a market for weight loss drugs, and 29 million more Americans in those categories gives you that market. So that's been part of it, is the data collection and the sort of drive from industry to make sure that we are continuing to think of higher body size as a problem. Now, Again, even if you sort of control for that data piece, I agree with you. On average, folks are bigger than we were a generation ago. Kids are bigger. So what's going on there? We often hear about things like changes in the food supply, environmental exposures, changes in screen time, exercise habits. All of that's probably part of the puzzle. But the thing we don't really talk about is the fact that the last 40 years has also been America on a collective crash diet. All of our messaging from public health folks, from the diet industry, has been weight loss, weight loss, weight loss. And as we just talked about, what we know happens with perpetual weight loss efforts is that we end up bigger as a result. Well, the food industry part of it and uh, environmental factors, 
that doesn't necessarily play into a weight loss message. Uh, much of the messaging, there is a lot of messaging. We in America don't lack for messaging, but a lot of the messaging is to eat quote unquote healthy, to instill good uh, values of eating into our kids, to try to eliminate these food deserts. I don't know how great we're doing about that. So even if weight loss doesn't work and we have this level setting uh, based on what your weight was and we try to get back to that weight because of starvation, what you talk about, you know, there has been a lot of effort to talk about eating healthier. And I know in your book, sometimes this just becomes a proxy for weight loss, but talking about it in the new goopified fashion. But is there something to be said for that? Is there something to be said for, you know, watching out for all the processed foods and the high sugar foods and the foods that we know addict us. Is there a merit to that? So we actually don't know that those foods addict us. What we know is that when we are restricted, when we are not allowing ourselves to eat those foods, when we encounter those foods with a mindset of this is bad and I'm being so indulgent, I'm going to have to make up for it at the gym on Monday, we then feel more compulsive around those foods. We eat them in greater quantities because we feel like it's like a Last Supper thing, right? Like you don't know when you're going to ever let yourself have Oreos again and now you can't stop eating the Oreos. And the problem is, again, there's, there's, I am happy to criticize the food industry. I do think they're part of this conversation. I know they have worked hard to formulate their products to be particularly delicious and, you know, the bliss point stuff and really play on us in that sense. But they're also playing directly into that restrictive mindset. So they, the food industry and the diet industry are hand in hand here. I mean, they often have the same corporate parents. They're selling you on the need to deprive yourself. And then they're selling you on the need to overindulge. And that's the conversation we're having around processed foods right now. If you remove that narrative and you just let these foods be foods, just like salads are foods, just like, you know, chicken is a food, whatever, it's just food in your house, I can tell you from personal experience and from my reporting, you don't eat these foods in such a compulsive, out-of-control manner. You take them or leave them. You enjoy them when they're there. You move on. You also want a salad. You don't have this out-of-control relationship with these foods because you no longer think of them as this thing you're addicted to that you're so out of control around. But in societies and cultures which didn't have these foods, which didn't have processed foods where the portion size was defined as smaller... Once these foods become added to the culture, let's look at China, which is getting richer. Let's look at South American cultures and Mexico. We see what doctors call obesity rates rise. There has to be, I'm willing to accept that there is certainly something to your feast or famine mindset, but there has to be something. We are animals. We are compelled to eat that which is sweet and savor that which is savory. And we do eat so that we, you know, we, as animals, we don't know where our next meal is coming from. So we like to uh, consume as many calories as possible. And these are sweet things and they're designed to make us consume them. I mean, throughout cultures, my point is that it's not just messaging. There's a biological imperative involved. And this does, I, I think, throughout uh, time and again, across cultures lead to weight gain. I think you can't separate out what is biology and what is messaging. I think when processed foods show up in a culture that didn't previously have them, they show up with that advertising and with that narrative. And every culture throughout history has had rigid body ideals. So every culture has some version of fat phobia that then this food messaging comes in and intersects with. When you think of these foods as equating to fatness and fatness equating to bad, 
it is almost impossible to engage with them without all of that coming into play. So that's where it becomes the self-fulfilling cycle. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I'll say I don't buy it. Uh, not totally. I think that messaging is important. I don't want to reiterate the old points. I do think that there is quite something to the fact that the foods themselves compel people to eat them. And even without a commercial for the foods, the foods are just so good. But anyway, well, you know, I want to get... Yeah. Sorry, just one other point I'll make about that is some really interesting research I looked at found that when they actually looked at the brains of dieters versus non-dieters, when they fed them these kinds of foods, the dieters were the brains that lit up with the really strong response. So Yeah, but that doesn't contradict my point. I didn't I wasn't talking about dieters and then the restriction mentality. I was talking about starting off by eating, you know, from a young age, starting off by eating a quote-unquote healthy diet seems to me a better way, uh, a healthier way to orient oneself. And it's not just because of messaging. I know that once you get into the area where you have to lose weight, then all sorts of interventions might not apply as well as the diet industry would have you believe. Right. But I'm saying a healthy diet can include these processed foods because you won't be so fixated on them and eat them in unhealthy ways if you don't feel restricted around them. So before we get to your definition of unhealthy weight, if you have one, I want to talk a little bit about the stigma aspect. Um, I 100% agree with you that stigmatizing what the medical community calls obese is bad for two reasons. One, it's just cruel and unethical. And two, even if you were a believer that, well, sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind, it doesn't work. We have so much evidence that the stigma doesn't work. In fact, tell me some of the evidence that you marshal that shows the stigma is worse than even the underlying ailment, quote unquote. Well, yeah, I mean, Weight-based stigma or anti-fat bias is a huge barrier to healthcare for fat folks. So if you go to a doctor and you go in because you have a sinus infection and all they want to talk to you about is losing weight right off the bat, which is the experience of most people in larger bodies, um, including myself, right off the bat, you're defensive, you're anxious, your blood pressure is higher, you're not going to get the medical care you need. We see body mass index being used as a barrier to turn folks away from fertility treatments, to turn folks away from knee surgeries, from all sorts of medical treatments. And yet, if somebody is seeking bariatric surgery, it's a totally safe procedure and that's fine, your weight isn't a concern at all. So we know that it's not just people's body size making these treatments harder to access, it's provider bias. We have lots of research documenting how high levels of provider bias are and how it informs, you know, doctors don't wanna to touch their fat patients. They don't spend as much time with them. How can you provide good medical care to someone you feel repulsed by? That's really the bottom line. And so then that leads fat folks to avoid going to the doctor until they absolutely have to. So of course, then they're sicker and harder to treat when they show up. They doctor shop, so we don't build the same good relationships with doctors that thin people might have, you know, on and on and on. So when we talk about the relationship between weight and health, we really have not been looking at all at how the bias against weight is causing so many of these health complications. How common is it for a doctor to be repulsed by a fat person? I mean, the research varies, but I've seen studies showing like at least one in five doctors agreeing with that statement and higher rates of doctors saying that they are hesitant to treat people. When I reported on the fertility industry for the New York Times Magazine, we found about two thirds of major fertility clinics won't even treat you at all unless you lose weight and get down to a lower BMI before you come in. Due so, to repulsion? Due to... I would say repulsion is a big factor in it, to be honest with you. 
due to a really embedded instinct that we have that the person who is allowed to become a mom needs to be a thin person. That somehow there's no you're- evidence, There's no evidence that what the medical community would call obesity poorly correlates to the success of IVF treatment? There is some evidence that being in a larger body means that you will be a little bit more complicated to treat under certain fertility treatments. And fertility clinics are concerned about their success rates because their whole business model hinges on that success rate. And so they have a motivation to turn away people they consider more complicated cases. But that is not meeting patients where they are in the body they have, and that is not actually benefiting the patient's health. Because we also have research showing that when people pursue weight loss, when folks are referred for bariatric surgery prior to then obtaining fertility treatments, it often increases their risk for complications in the fertility process. So weight loss is not the answer there. Giving people good fertility care is the answer. Right. So I would listen to that and say, you make a good point about the economic imperatives of these fertility clinics, and that's driving their choices. I don't know where repulsion comes in. Repulsion comes in when I got on the phone with one of those fertility clinic owners to interview him about his BMI cutoffs. And the first thing he said to me was, what is your BMI? Uh-huh. And I'm a journalist, and I am not someone whose weight is at all material to the conversation. But that's what he wanted to know about me, because he said, I have to be careful if you're one of those. If you're one of those? Oh. One of those fat ladies who will get mad at me. Oh, I see. All right. Well, again, that's a pretty stupid and rude, but I, you know, I don't know that that... If you have statistics, and you do, about one in five doctors, but I don't know what the, how the repulsion thing really shows up except in that anecdote, which the doctor said think... something stupid. It seems to be entirely, entirely economic. I think economics is a huge part of it, but I do think... When you talk to fat people about our lived experiences in the world, the amount of times people experience harassment around their body size, it's not just a couple stupid comments. Fat folks don't feel safe walking into most public spaces because people might, you're in the grocery store and people feel like they can comment on what's in your grocery cart. You know, your kid goes to school and they're going to get bullied on the playground. Like, this is more than just a few dumb comments. This is systemic bias. And right, it plays out in terms of I, this. I'm sorry to interrupt, but my point was about fertility clinics, which you said uh, were driven by repulsion is a reason, strong word, a reason why fertility clinics were, were turning away obese patients. It certainly is true that kids get bullied on the playground and large bodied people get discriminated against and have to deal with so much stigma that they shouldn't. But I don't, I would say that doesn't get to uh, the idea that repulsion is driving the economic imperatives of, not imperatives, the economic choices of fertility clinics. But I do want to ask you, do you agree with the notion that some weights at some very high weights are inherently unhealthy? I think it's a really complicated question we haven't been answering well. I think, yes, that there are times when weight and health have a direct relationship with one another. I think it is less frequent than we think because of the role bias plays, because we haven't been controlling for that in any of the research. We don't have data showing a causal relationship between high body weights and poor health outcomes. We show a correlation between these two things. And so when we start to break down what could be the, re the reason, there may be a causal relationship there. But again, when we talk about how ineffective weight loss is, that doesn't mean that weight loss is going to be the answer there. And 
More often than not, it's the role of this bias. It's the fact that folks in larger bodies also tend to be lower income or marginalized in other ways, don't have the same access to health care, don't have the same access to healthy food, walkable neighborhoods, all of those sorts of things. When we focus solely on body size, we are ignoring all these other factors that are much more important to change, and we're reinforcing anti-fat bias at the same time. Right. We don't have causation. We have correlation. But this is how medicine works. People who smoke cigarettes are 13 to 30 times more likely to get lung cancer or die from lung cancer. That's not causation. That's correlation. Just like people who are obese are up to 80 times more likely to develop type 2 diabetes than those with lower BMIs. That's from the UK Diabetes Foundation. So the correlations, especially at very high weights, Um, are very, very strong. And to ignore them or to downplay them, why is that an ultimate service to society or the people at these very high weights? Number one, I want to point out that smoking is a behavior and body size is not a behavior. Yes, I know. But I was speaking of it in terms of correlations. We could say that working in a a hairdresser's, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but things that aren't behaviors, things that are... Well, working in a hairdresser's is also a behavior. Well, it's environmental. it's not a fixed trait about your body. Or it's environmental, Um, you know, living in certain neighborhoods and rates of asthma might have a very high correlation to the point where researchers could say, okay, not 100% of the kids have asthma, but the asthma rates have spiked by 900%. And therefore, we call it a very, very high correlation. Just like, you know, the Texas Heart Institute did a study that say that this says that women's with women with a body mass index, um, a BMI of 30 have 28 times greater risk of developing diabetes than women with a normal weight. That is a very high correlation. The risk of diabetes 93 times greater. So it's not a causation. You're right. But the cor- when the correlation is so strong, what is the service in denying that there's something prominent there? The services, we don't have safe and effective and durable, accessible weight loss for people. And so to keep focusing on weight as the entire problem when you cannot solve that problem and when focusing on that problem makes people feel terrible about their bodies, makes them feel unsafe in the world, you are not helping. You are not fixing it. And we know we're not fixing it because of the numbers you just shared, because we are not making improvements on these disease rates. And we're also not getting thinner. So obviously this hasn't worked and we need a new approach. So to summarize what you just said, what is the point of emphasizing these dangers when there's nothing you could do about it? There's lots we could do about it. We're not doing any of those things, but weight loss is not the thing to do. What's Right. So what's the point of emphasizing that? Well said. What's the point of emphasizing the dangers of this high weight when you can't make people or somehow intervene to achieve a lower weight? However... I don't think you do emphasize the dangers of this. I think that there is so much in the book and in reading and listening to Burnt Toast where it's 90-something percent denying the correlation between very high weight. And I'm not talking about the uh, even low obesity, which you say doesn't seem to correlate to greater death. There is an effort, and it reminds me- I don't say it. The CDC says it, but carry on. It reminds me, well, you literally wrote it in the book, but it does remind me of many of these anti-scientific or even anti-vax people who will make points about the dangers of vaccines that may or may not be true. Your points are better. But then leap to, and there is no known danger 
to the actual underlying um, ailment, let us call, very high weight. And the science just isn't there. And I actually think that it is as much as you address the danger of stigma to deny that, especially at very high levels of obesity, there is a real danger. To me, it undercuts the argument. I think it's interesting that being critical about science, sort of evaluating science, is has become equated to something like an anti-vax position. I am saying that this has been a huge missing part of the conversation for decades. As long as we've had a field of obesity research, we have been failing to account for stigma. We have been perpetuating stigma, and we have not been looking at how this is causing the very problems, how this is playing a role in the very problems we are trying to address. And so I am trying to hold the science to a higher standard. I am not saying get rid of science altogether. I am an extremely pro-vaccines, pro-medication person. I want that to be clear before my DMs blow up after this episode. Um, But I do want scientists and doctors to take a hard look at how we have, and as a health journalist, I've taken this hard look at how we have all been complicit in causing this harm. And it is not because I am con- I am dismissive of those health issues. If you are concerned about diabetes and heart disease, if you are concerned about your child's future metabolic health, which I absolutely am, then preventing an eating disorder in their teenage years is a really great first step because nothing trashes your metabolic health faster and your heart health faster than living for decades with a restrictive eating disorder. So. While we have been so focused on weight loss, weight loss, weight loss as this silver bullet for these other health conditions, we have been ignoring the epidemic of disordered eating and eating disorders and the huge toll that takes on people of all body sizes. I don't think it's a silver bullet. I think that there's this gigantic correlation between being extremely overweight and having these bad health outcomes. And the medical community, perhaps imperfectly, is trying to point to this and say that if you are, I, I could, as you know, we could read hundreds of statistics about how strong the correlation is. And so much, I understand what your project is to talk about the stigma, but then you frequently take the step of either denying or acknowledging that there is a danger and an extremely strong correlation to diabetes, heart health, strokes, many other negative outcomes that has a material effect on not just the lives of people, but the lifespans of Americans. If you compare Americans' lifespans to European lifespans, the biggest reason that there is a gap is not guns, it's not drug overdoses, it's not driving, it's obesity-related illnesses. And I care about the lives of my fellow citizens. So to me, to deny that obesity-related illnesses are making us live shorter lives would be essentially the same as me saying, I don't care about murders or, oh, drug overdoses, you could do, do drugs in a healthy way. There's no evidence that opioids will necessarily kill you. To me, it's a, you know, ethical, caring gesture about our country and civilization as a whole. But you don't have a solution for those conditions that's not weight loss. I am all, I am, we're speaking the same same language, Mike. I agree with you. These health conditions are hugely concerning. I'm saying they deserve actual solutions. Weight loss is not the solution. Weight loss has failed us and caused a whole all of these other problems. 
So I'm saying if we want to get serious about treating type 2 diabetes and preventing type 2 diabetes, we need to be addressing poverty. We need to be addressing systemic bias. We need to be improving access to health care. We need to be making Ozempic a diabetes medication as it was intended to be instead of selling it for $1,400 a month for thin people to get thinner. There's a lot we could be doing that we're not doing when we are so concerned about our, our fellow citizens' health. And what I hear as a fat person is, I'm so concerned about your health, and therefore I can tell you exactly what you should be doing, regardless of like not having your lived experience, not having done the, you know, the things that fat people have. It is not news to fat people that people think we should lose weight. Fat people have tried to lose weight. It has not worked. And then we are blamed. For failing, for failing at this system that has been set up to fail us. So I am, I am arguing that fat people's health really, really matters, and it has been devalued because of this bias. Does bariatric surgery work? Bariatric surgery works for some patients. It also causes a lifetime of side effects. It has extremely high rates of suicide and addiction, alcohol addiction following it. That is a lot to take on a risk of suicide and a risk of alcohol addiction. And a big reason for that is because it is marketed aggressively as a silver bullet to all of these problems. And then it turns out that people are still really struggling afterwards because it is really hard to live with a very small shrunken stomach. It is really hard to live with the nutritional deficiencies that comes with that. It is a life-altering procedure that we are asking people to take on when we could be looking as a society at how do we make this world safer for fat bodies. And what do we need to do to support their health that doesn't involve them actually having to put themselves through something like that? And we'll be back in one more moment to talk more with Virginia Soul Smith on the topic of, among other things, bariatric surgery. Post-bariatric suicide rate was 2.7 per 1,000, which is higher than the population at large, but not incredibly higher. If you give me a minute, I can pull up the, another study on that in teenagers if you want another set of numbers. I don't have it right in front of me, but I can get it. So you're saying it's much higher in teenagers. I, I take your point. There's a concerning study. Since the American Academy of Pediatrics has now said that doctors should consider referrals for bariatric surgery for kids, I think, ages 13 and up, yes, um, there is a lot of concern about that being a clinical guideline when there is some extremely concerning data on the high rates of depression and suicide ideation in teenagers after bariatric surgery, and that the that procedure is just not well studied in that population to begin with. Yeah. So another study I have here is that among 16,000 people who had weight loss surgery in the 10 years from 95 to 04, 31 committed suicide. So that's, of course, tragic for those 31. But um, I want to get to I want to get to one other interesting thing. So you say we don't really know the effect of we can't really do a good randomized control trial of the obese person or the uh, large bodied person who loses weight and does so in an atmosphere without stigma. If you try to figure out what's worse, the stigma or the weight, it's impossible because everyone with the weight has the stigma. I think that's a good point. Do you want to get into that more? Because I want to make a point uh, or ask your question based on that. Yeah, I mean, it is really difficult to figure out how do we separate out what is the impact of the weight and what is the impact of living with weight-based stigma when 
everyone in a larger body experiences weight-based stigma. So how to control for that in trials is is an open question. Um, I'm really encouraged since the book came out that I'm hearing from researchers who study kids and nutrition and weight and are saying we need to do a better job of this. We need to start understanding that harm. And there is a growing field of weight stigma research that's been really looking into this. But it does mean because that question has been unasked for so long, anytime you look at the large epidemiological studies on weight and health, you're really not getting at the full picture because that wasn't even a variable they considered controlling for. Right. But if we've never really, we don't have a society where we could achieve weight loss without stigma, how can we say that weight loss isn't an answer, a tool in the toolbox to what we were talking about, the the gap between US and European lifespans? We've never... So in a sentence, if your project is to destigmatize being obese and... Part of your project is to also emphasize that and make the point that there's no known way to lose weight. If your first half of what you're trying to do succeeds, if we successfully destigmatize, it is possible that actually losing weight could occur. And that would be a good thing. We don't have to go so far as to say, let us not have a stigma and also let's realize that weight loss is impossible. We don't know. We've never tried weight loss in a destigmatized atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment. There's a world, there's a parallel universe without weight stigma where losing weight could be an aesthetic choice you make, like getting a tattoo or changing your hair color. And we could just consider that something people can manipulate about their bodies for their own, you know, for their own pleasure or preferences or for health reasons if there was that evidence. But the world we're in now, pursuing weight loss is always happening in a fat phobic society. So you can't separate out these two things. And when we see that a top predictor of future eating disorder risk is childhood dieting and weight-based stigma, when we see that strong relationship, you know, that teenage girls who diet at a severe rate are 18 times more likely to develop eating disorders, but even moderate dieters following programs that doctors would recommend are five times more likely to develop eating disorders. I don't think it is helpful to stay here. I don't think this is a really useful question. I think we need to be saying, what else do people need to promote their health that is not going to carry such a huge risk? Yeah. And I do have to say, uh, we have been talking about maybe the first two chapters of the book, and it really does deliver on its promise. Parenting in the age of diet culture, how to talk to your kids uh, constructively about fat, weight, eating, all of this. It's uh, not a false premise. I would hate for listeners of this to say that, oh, it's titled one thing, but delivers something else. There is one last thing I want to get into. And this was something that you talk about a little bit in the book, but something that the podcast maintenance phase, which uh, you refer to a few times, and I think you're a fan of. Have you been on that show? Uh, No, but Aubrey and I are buddies. Yeah. Okay. So Aubrey, one of the co-hosts of that show. They've done several segments on this, and they talked about the idea of the obesity epidemic, and they're gigantic critics of the medical model of obesity. And, you know, to criticize them, which isn't you, they talk about how the medical model was adapted and how it correlated with uh, some weight loss drugs being brought to the market and how some people on the panel were consultants for Weight Watchers. Yeah, that's all true. 
But then they say, because we adopted the disease model, the medical model of obesity, it immediately taught the public to regard obese people, large-bodied people as diseased. It, It inherently stigmatized them. And I'm not sure that it did any more than the stigma was already there. And I think of other medical models like the medical model of mental illness, whereas, you know, a couple hundred years ago, these people were not, it wasn't seen as a medical problem, it was seen as like something like demonic possession. And, but when we began to study it medically, quite imperfectly, we began to understand it more. Or the medical model of substance abuse, right? It used to very much like some of the issues you're talking about. Alcohol use, drug use, you should just be seen as a moral failure, and then it began to be regarded as a disease. So that is my question. Is the medical model inherently stigmatizing? Would you say we no longer stigmatize against people because of their mental health? I would say that it's probably come down gigantically since before we had the medical model. Yeah. I don't think we've made that much progress. I mean, as someone who interviews lots of people about eating disorders and their relationships with mental health, I can tell you, and especially with men, I see that stigma extremely alive and well. It's very difficult for folks to come to talk openly and honestly about these struggles because of the shame they're experiencing, because of the stigma they encounter. So well, I, think I don't think we, it destigmatizes an absolute. I mean, it's gone down, you know, so I can't put a percentage on it, but it seems to have been cut at least in half wh- wh- how we used to deal with someone who is mentally ill in 1950 to how we think about someone who's mentally ill in 2023. I think we have a long way to go. And I think that the disease model has not necessarily been the turning point on that. I mean, the other place to look for for models on this is, well, there's two places we can go. One is the disability rights community. I think lots of disabled folks would tell you they experience daily stigma and oppression, and being viewed as diseased has not helped that. It has not you know, furthered the fight for improving access to public spaces and all of the things that dis- the disability rights advocates are fighting for. The other thing is, you know, we had a medical model for homosexuality for a long time, and that definitely did not do a lot to further gay rights. So I think the medical model, what it does is it paints people as victims and as people to be pitied and as people to be looked down on because you they are struggling in a way that you are not and you can feel glad you don't struggle that way. I don't think it makes us see people as more human. I think it makes us put people in boxes, and that's a really big problem. Well, as far as gay rights goes, when you have apply a medical model to something that has no health consequence, then of course it's misapplied. When you apply a medical model to something like schizophrenia or alcohol abuse or um, morbid, what was once called morbid obesity, there is of course a health implication. So doesn't doesn't surprise me that applying it to homosexuality wouldn't have an effect. But I think there's still lessons to be learned there for how that actually increased the stigma because it then framed homosexuality as a mental health condition. And as we're talking about, mental health conditions carry a very strong stigma. We have not yet made enough progress on that front. And the other reality is... In our culture, health is a form of cultural capital, right? Health is not accessible to everybody. So when we frame something as a disease, we get back into that question of willpower. The goal of it was to take people away from willpower, right? That's what the obesity researchers will say. Oh, it's a disease. It's not your fault. But it still plays into this um, this very American idea of like, I can be as healthy as possible through sheer willpower. So it didn't actually help with that piece. It also then starts to intersect with classism and racism in really important ways because 
in a country where healthcare is as expensive and inaccessible as it is, good health is available to the privileged. It is not available to everybody. And so furthering the, patholo- furthering the pathologization of fat bodies by labeling us as diseased only digs us in deeper on all of those biases. Virginia Soul Smith is the author of Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. She writes the Burnt Toast newsletter on Substack, has a podcast of the same name. I thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the chief birthday officer of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiry. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Hey, guess what? There will be a show tomorrow, as there always is a Saturday show. Also, Monday's a holiday, but check the feed. I'm putting a couple good segments in there this Memorial Day. Talk to you later. And thanks for listening. <laughs>